Welcome to the Faith Lakeside Podcast. Each week you'll hear another great message that will help you know God and make Him known in your life. Join us each Sunday at 1045 a.m. and throughout the week in small groups to make the most of your learning experiences. Now, sit back, relax with a great cup of coffee and a notebook and enjoy this week's message. can be seated. Uh, quick thing, uh, I'd like everybody to go ahead and raise your Ebenezer. I just, I, come now found. I was just, I love that song, uh, but I was just curious if anybody knew what their Ebenezer was. Uh, we're not talking your copy of um, um, Christmas Carol or anything. Uh, so just, just a real quick thing. I'm a nerd. I love this kind of stuff, right? So um, it is in First uh, Samuel chapter 7 verse 12 Here's what happens. It says then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called its name Ebenezer For he said till now the Lord has helped us and Ebenezer real, uh, literally means uh, stone of help and so it is Acknowledging that God is our sure foundation our stone of help in times of trouble. That's why we raise our Ebenezer. We set up our Ebenezer, a stone of remembrance that reminds us of God's consistency, his faithfulness in times of trouble. So that was in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. If you ever, you know, are playing Trivial Pursuit and they ask you what is your Ebenezer in uh, Come Now Fount, now you know the answer. So... Uh, <laughs> For everybody who doesn't care, we're going to dive into uh, Mark chapter, uh, where are we at? Chapter 9. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Mark chapter 9 as we continue our series on the Christ. A couple of quick announcements. That didn't work the way I meant for it to. Uh, but there is an announcement there. It's coded. Only, only genuinely uh, saved people can see it. Men's breakfast. Uh, March 6th, 8 a.m. downstairs in the fellowship hall. So guys, just put that on your calendar. We don't do a lot of men's stuff just yet, but we're hoping to do more. And this is part of that experience. So join us for a great breakfast, a time of learning and fellowship. And uh, it's a place to get to know some other guys. Well, that's a pretty one, but who wants more snow? Uh, <laughs> there's a couple of us, I know. Oh. All right, so... um. But just, just uh, guys, I'd love to see you there. A quick announcement about Threads of Hope. Right now, we do not need any more clothes. So if you've got a big pile of clothes stored up that you were waiting to bring in, please don't do it. You can either hold on to them for a little bit longer, or we also you know, encourage you, uh, we've got our own clothing closet and clothing ministry, but um, the mission, you can always take it to one of their thrift stores, and they give away things to folks in the, the uh, mission, and they also sell some things in order to raise money. So that's a great ministry if you've got a bunch of clothes you need to get rid of. Um, today is the day for the Destination Dig VBS informational meeting right after service. So if you're interested in helping out with one of our biggest mission-oriented programs of the year, join Missy and the VBS team downstairs right after service for a quick meeting. There won't be any food, sorry, unless there's some munchkins left over from uh, the, uh, the breakfast bar. 
but otherwise, just to come and see how you can fit into this year's VBS, a great mission opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus with children and their families. So we're going to continue our look at the Christ, which is a series going through the gospel according to Mark. And so uh, if you've got your Bibles, you can begin to open them up. Mark chapter 9, verses 33 through 50 is what we're going to be looking at today. And the Bible app, it should be in there as well, so you can open up your Bible app and find today's sermon notes. Remember that gospel means good news. It is the glad tidings that, that are, are being told, of an historical announcement of a change in rulers, a change in leadership. And this change of leadership is Jesus. He is the Christ. He is the promised Messiah or King of the Old Testament coming to establish his kingdom in our hearts and in our world, and he is the Son of God. Now, last week, we looked at uh, Mark chapter 9, and we saw the story of the father who brought his son to be uh, healed from the demon, had the demon cast out of him, and that father struggled believing that Jesus was willing, but struggling with believing that Jesus could or would. And so uh, that lesson last week is much that we as believers, we walking in fellowship and following after Jesus as disciples are going to have times where we believe, but we struggle with unbelief, where we know it to be true, but we struggle to apply it to our daily lives. And so it is such a comfort to know that Jesus, when this man struggled with his unbelief, didn't say, well, never mind, go away. But instead, Jesus cast the demon out. Jesus healed his son and we get to see that even in the midst of struggling with putting our faith in Jesus Christ, he is still faithful. He is still loving and gracious. And so maybe you're one of those folks, you know, I believe, but I'm really struggling with unbelief right now. It's okay. Jesus is still at work in your life and longs to see you walk closer to him. So Mark chapter 9 verses 33 through 50 kind of continues this story. Remember that the disciples have just... Uh, three of them saw Jesus transfigured. All uh, The other nine struggled with casting out a demon. Jesus then casts it out, tells them the reason they couldn't do it was because they weren't believing, they didn't pray and submit themselves to his authority in the way that they needed to. And then he goes on to tell them that he is going to die and rise again. And uh, then this happens. So Mark chapter 9, verses 33 through 37, let's start to look here. So here's what happens. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So what we have going on here is Jesus has just shown his disciples that it was their lack of submission, their lack of trust in him that led to their inability in casting out the demon. And so what do they discuss on the journey back south towards Capernaum? They don't discuss, wow, shouldn't we be praying more? They don't talk about, 
we need to be in submission to the teachings of Jesus. Instead, we find out that they had been arguing about who was the most important disciple. Can you imagine what this is, is, is like? As, as Jesus and the disciples, they're walking, and, and this is, is a good day's journey that they're taking, and instead of trying to understand why they had fallen short, why they had been weak in, in casting out demons, why their submission had fallen short, they are arguing about who is the greatest. It's kind of like kids, right? Arguing over who mom and dad love the most. And of course, our children know exactly who is the most beloved. And so they don't even need to argue anymore. Except at about 11 o'clock at night when we're trying to sleep and they're both still awake for some reason, arguing over who's the most important and who's the favorite and who we love the most. But they know who I love the most. Um, so, right? That's just setting them up for more argument. But the disciples, here they are arguing over who is the greatest. You know, our culture tells us who's the greatest, doesn't it? It tells us who's the most important. Oftentimes, what we're finding out, especially today, is that the greatest person, the person with the most authority, is the loudest person, especially on social media. The ones who complain the most, the ones who gripe the most, the ones who are the most oppressed, or the ones who are the most offended. Those are the greatest. Those are the ones that we should be submitting to. We look around, and who is the greatest according to our culture? It's the wealthiest, isn't it? The greatest is the person who has the most money in their accounts, who has the most authority and power. Sometimes the greatest is the best looking. You know, uh, the, the, the best looking man of the year, whatever. I can't even remember what's it. People Magazine does it. You know, it's been George Clooney like since uh, sometime in the 1930s, I think. Um, but, but, you, you know, it, there's that, the, the, the most beautiful people, the best looking people, those are the ones who are the greatest. And then finally, you know, the ones who are the most successful, the ones who have the most power or authority, those are the ones who are the greatest in our culture. And, and I don't know about you, but, but I struggle with that kind of perspective and that kind of mindset. Even in, in, in church life, even in ministry life, pastors are told, you know, it, the, the greatest pastors, the greatest teachers are the ones with the biggest churches. They're the ones with you know, the most books on the shelves. They're, they're the ones who uh, are, are traveling the world and doing conferences and speaking engagements. Those are the greatest. And the faithful pastors who serve in a single place for dozens of years and only see a few people every Sunday, those are the ones who are less than. Those are the ones who are slighted. You might have that same kind of thing being spoken into your ear when it comes to your spiritual life, when it comes to your work life, when it comes to your family. I mean, as parents, isn't it easy to struggle if your kids aren't the most successful in the class? If, if instead of being doctors and lawyers and such, they are the cowboys, right? Uh, you, you know, and and the, wouldn't it be even worse if they were the Dallas Cowboys? Um, just saying. <laughs> I, I, so, funny aside, right? Saw a quick meme on Facebook the other day. The only way to keep Tom Brady from winning another Super Bowl ring is for him to be traded to the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, then he would be assured of never getting another Super Bowl ring. Um, 
never mind. Some of you don't, don't like football as little as I do. So it's so important, though, for us to understand we're being spoken to, we're being prattled on about, we're supposed to be the most productive, we're supposed to be the wealthiest, maybe we're supposed to be the loudest and the most brash, maybe we are the, supposed to be the best looking, and that's what it means to be important in our culture. We have got to be the people who are the best and the most successful. And Jesus' disciples are walking down the road, arguing amongst themselves, who's the most important among us? Who is the most successful? Who's the one that Jesus is going to turn to with authority? Who's second in command? What's interesting is Jesus is going to answer them, and then they're going to struggle with this again later. But... Here's what Jesus says to them. He sat down, he calls the twelve, and he says to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. You see, Jesus, in teaching what it means to be important, turns it completely on its head. Instead of arguing over who has the most authority or who is the most successful or who is the best looking, Jesus tells his followers, if you really want to be the most important, you will choose to be the least important every time. You will choose to submit yourself to the needs of others every time. And we see Jesus later on in his life in the Gospel of John, we see him living this out. On the, the night he was betrayed there at the Last Supper, they had gotten a room for dinner, and, and, and Jesus and all of the disciples arrive, and usually part of arranging for the festivities of the Passover meal would have been finding someone to wash the feet of all of the guests. The disciples overlooked that, the ones who were planning the meal. And so as the meal is getting ready to start, Jesus, he, he uh, kind of takes off his outer garments, puts a towel around his waist, and he begins to wash everyone's feet. He takes the role of the most humble servant in a household upon himself in order to show his followers what it is to be great what it is to be first, what it is to be the most important in the room. And the most important person in the room is the person who realizes and lives like they are the least important person in the room. The Christian faith turns power and authority over on its head. We should not be seeking to be the most powerful. We should not be seeking to be the most successful as a means of of being first in the kingdom of God. Instead, we need to understand that we can be successful, we can be beautiful, we can be wealthy, but to be first in the kingdom is to ignore those things and instead begin to serve everyone we encounter. To begin to serve especially other believers. And so Jesus is essentially saying to all of us, to be greatest is to serve everyone you meet with humility. To serve everyone with humility. Now, does that mean we need to be uh, stripping down and washing feet every time we encounter people? 
No, that would be awkward going to the grocery store and all of a sudden, you know, you're like, hey, I need to wash your feet. Could you just stand here? Right. We're not talking about there being one single act of humility and service. Instead, it can look at any number of different ways. It can be shoveling neighbors' driveways and sidewalks. It can be mowing a lawn. It can be buying groceries. It can be just sitting and listening to someone who needs to talk. And not putting yourself first and trying to come into the situation and be the superhero, but being willing to serve in whatever capacity you can. To be greatest in God's economy is to serve everyone around you with humility. And then Jesus kind of reinforces this by by saying he took a child and he put him in the midst of them and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. What we see is that Jesus is saying, whoever is willing to humble themselves to the point of treating the least important person in the culture with love and compassion and grace is doing the work of receiving Jesus himself and not just Jesus but Jesus and the Father and ultimately the Holy Spirit receiving the fullness of God into our midst by serving with all that we are. Interesting note, in Aramaic, which is the street language of Jesus' day for the Jewish people, the word child and servant is the same word. And so Jesus is kind of playing with words a little bit and saying everyone who welcomes the servants by seeing them as equal and worthy of grace and love, receiving them is like receiving me. All of you should want to serve in order to be the greatest. Stop arguing over who's the best looking. We already know who it is in this church. And everybody's looking around like, wait. Was there a survey? Stop talking about who's the wealthiest. We're not going to pull out W-2s and start flashing them. No, look, look at me. I'm the best. We're not going to start pulling out 401k statements, right? We're not going to talk about who's the most successful. We're not going to talk about who's the loudest. Everybody knows it's me. But what we all are going to talk about is who's actually leading by serving. I I will say that we have got some great leaders in our church. And why do I say that? Because for the most part, you don't always know who's doing the leading. You don't always know who's standing up and doing the work because they're quiet, they're humble, they're gracious. Very few people in our church are the kind of people who will have a ministry named after them. You know, suchandsuch.com. Instead, we are the people who will serve quietly and humbly and love you and want to see you serving and doing as God has called you as well. And that's how the church should work. I want want to encourage you, do not put me on a pedestal. First of all, I have really bad balance and I will fall off. But when we're talking about even that pedestal of leadership, that's not what a church leader should be like. They should not be elites. They should not be standing up on pedestals. They should not be untouchable. 
Instead, they should be brothers and sisters, just like you and I, and we should see them not as the most important in the room, but as the person who is willing to serve everyone else at the drop of a hat. I need to be held accountable to that. Other leaders need to be held accountable to that. Sadly, we can look, and even in the last week, some of us who are you know, into Christian culture know that a great teacher, someone we've respected for years, Ravi Zacharias, stories have come out that he was less than in the way that he approached people. He, he was inappropriate in his relationships with women. He was a, a, a totalitarian in his leadership style. He was self-centered and self-righteous, it seems. And we shouldn't stand in condemnation of that, but we should understand that any of us, when we fall prey to believing the press about ourselves and putting ourselves first over others, we're not walking as Christ would have us walk. Instead, greatness comes through servanthood. And it starts in the church, and it should flow out everywhere we go. If you are an employer or a boss at work, nobody should think of you and be scared. <laughs> if they're scared of you and you call yourself a Christian, you're not living it quite right. And it's time to see how Jesus would lead you, have you lead. Parents, our kids shouldn't be afraid of us. Husbands, our wives should not be afraid of us. We should be leading with humility and servanthood first and foremost. So Jesus and the disciples, they continue on and they're having some other discussions as this passage continues. So in chapter 9, verses 38 through 41, here's what we see happening they just finished this discussion about who's the greatest and then john says to jesus teacher we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us and jesus said do not stop him for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me for the one who is not against us is for us for truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. So Jesus just begins to tell them, the way to be the greatest in my economy is to be servant of everybody. And so John pipes in and says, yeah, but what about those people, Jesus? He starts playing a little bit of the whataboutism, the, the hey, but look over there, Jesus, you know. Uh, don't pay attention to us. What about those people? Those people are trying to do things in your name. They're trying to cast out demons. And, and, and so John brings this out. Now, I want you to think back to, to just last week. We talked about casting out a demon. How do demons come out? How are they cast out? Prayer. Submission to God and his Christ. That, that, that demons are not cast out because someone knows magic words. And, and to prove that to you, we can look at Acts chapter 19, verses 13 through 16. What's going on is there had been some, some casting out of demons by, by Paul and, and others like him. And, and what happens is some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. 
saying, I adjure or command you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. In other words, they were trying to cast out demons by just saying over a demon-possessed person, Jesus, 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 Jesus. Like the name of Jesus was simply a magic word. And, and we see this in modern culture some, but, but we have to understand that there were people who thought that they could cast out a demon because they had seen Paul do it simply based on the power of the name of Jesus. Now, the name of Jesus is powerful to save. It is powerful to change lives, but not because it is a magic word, because when you submit yourself to the name of Jesus, you are submitting yourself to Jesus himself as your Lord and Savior, and so it, he has the power to change you. But his name isn't a magic word, because what happens, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus, I know, Paul, I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Oh, I love this, this, this little story in Scripture. Scripture is so real. It's so, like, down to earth. Here are seven men who go into one demon-possessed person and say, leave in the name of Jesus and the name of Paul. And they get beat up, stripped down, and sent running. Because the name of Jesus is not a magic word for casting out demons. Like Jesus himself said, Demons are only cast out by prayer or submission to Jesus as the Christ and God his Father. And so this act of prayer, this act of submission is implying a relationship with Christ, a faith in Christ. How are demons cast out? Not by the magic word of Jesus' name, but by genuine faith in Jesus Christ and his power over the demonic. And so... When Jesus' disciples, they fuss and they complain and say, hey, those people are casting out demons. We have to understand they are casting out demons not because they know the right magic words, but because they know Jesus as the Christ. They understand who he really is and they have faith in him. So Jesus responds to his disciples and he says this, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. Now, if someone is able to cast out a demon in the name of Jesus Christ, it's not because his name is a magic word, but because they have genuine faith in him. And they've submitted themselves to him. And they've submitted the situation to him. And so uh, to effectively cast out a demon in the name of Jesus means you believe on Jesus as your Christ. And so the disciples were looking around and going, yeah, but we're still more important to you, right, Jesus? Because look, we don't, we, you don't want to use those kind of people, do you? You don't want to use people who aren't like us. Because, I mean, maybe we're all equal as servants, but we're still the most important to you, aren't we, Jesus? We can have this kind of attitude sometimes when it comes to other denominations, to other Christians. 
Anybody ever looked at, at, at someone who has an effective ministry and you go, how does God use a person like that? I mean, they have tattoos. Their hair is longer than mine, or they have none at all. Their beard is scraggly. Or maybe they, they like heavy metal music, <gasps> in which can be found the very beats of hell. You, you see, we, we begin to discount the ministry of others. Valid fruit is coming from them, but we discount them because they're not us. And we want to be more important. We want to be more beloved. This is, this is an argument in the same vein that Jesus had just rebuked them in. They're like, well, Jesus, who's the most important among us? And he says, whoever serves. Well, we're still more important than them, right? We're still better than them. And Jesus says, no. Everyone, everyone who isn't against us, who is actually doing the work of the ministry in my name, in faith in me, they're with me. They're part of us. We should be together in them. There's a, a story in the book of Numbers, chapter 11, verses 26 through 29. And, and what's going on is, is um, the camp has been emptied out, and, and there are two men who remain in the camp, the, the camp where the Israelites are living uh, in their wilderness wanderings. And uh, two men remain, one named Eldad and the other named Medad, and the spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent, and so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth said, My Lord Moses, stop them. Wait, we, we can't allow people to do spiritual things who aren't as spiritual as we are. Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. You see, instead of looking at other people and saying, well, why would God use somebody like that? We should look around at all of us and go, oh, that God would use all of us in that way. Instead of looking at somebody and saying, tattoos and long hair or short hair or beards or a dress, we say, oh, that God would use us in that way. What do I have to do, Lord Jesus? How do I have to submit myself where would you like me to serve? I'm tired of just sitting on the sidelines. Oh, would you use me like that? Mark 9, 41, Jesus says, For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. In other words, even the simplest of ministry done through faith in Christ, will be rewarded. Even the simplest ministry, like giving a cup of water to someone in need. So if you say, but ministry's hard, and, and I tell you what it is, but ministry is scary, and, and it is, right? And, and especially those of you who have ever done door knocking and you're a little more on the introverted side, you know, you knock on the door and you pray no one's there. So you can just leave the track and run away. Right? Ministry, ministry can be unnerving. Reaching out and serving Christ with all that you are can, can be scary. But, but Jesus says to the disciples, even if someone were to just give a cup of water in my name, that is the beginning of being used. 
That is the beginning of greatness in my economy. So I want to encourage you, if you're looking around and going, I don't know how to serve, I don't know how to be a servant, I don't know how to be humble, start giving away, figuratively, cups of water. It doesn't have to be big. Small things that give comfort to others in their time of need. Small acts of service and kindness that maybe don't cost you a lot, but are deeply meaningful in the moment. Jesus says, to be great, you must be a servant. The disciples say, well, I don't want to serve like that. Or is it, are they allowed to do that? And Jesus says, listen, don't worry about them. Even the people who do the smallest of ministries will be blessed and rewarded. And I want you to have that mindset. Serve where you can. Serve what's avail- in a way that's available. And know that you will be rewarded. The test to determine a gospel coworker. In other words, to understand that somebody else is doing the work of ministry. Do they give the glory to God? Do they exalt Jesus as Christ and Savior? And are their works consistent with faith in and fellowship with Christ? In other words, how can you know that somebody else is doing the work of the ministry? They give the glory to God. They lift up the name of Christ. And it looks like the kind of stuff Jesus says it should look like. It's that simple. How do you know if you're doing the work of the ministry? Are you giving the glory to God? Are you exalting Christ? Or are you exalting yourself? And and are those works consistent with what you see in Scripture? Or are you building your own little kingdom and calling it ministry? Now this continues, and Jesus begins to tell his disciples in verse 42 of chapter 9, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you be made salty, or how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So we move from Who's the most important? The servants. Who's a valid minister of Jesus? Whoever does ministry in his name according to his glory in a means that's consistent with what he's already shown us. And then what do we have to do to remain faithful ministers? What do we have to do to remain faithful in sharing the good news of Jesus? We have to be worried about uh, what we say and what we do ultimately. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. Now, how do you cause somebody else to sin? Well, you can't really, like, hold them down and and poke at them or water torture or anything like that. No, really, what Jesus is talking about is not a physical coercion. Instead, it is a coercion by leadership and lifestyle. How do you cause someone else to sin? 
You teach them false doctrine. You lie to them about what God says. And I have to tell you, there are lots of people in pulpits and on platforms this Sunday who will be lying to the people in their congregations about what God's Word says regarding sin. They're going to tell them that there are certain sins that the Bible is very clear about that are okay now because culture has changed. They're going to tell them that there are certain ways of thinking about God that are acceptable because, you know, we're more intelligent now and we have science. And they will lie to the people in their congregation. They will teach them false doctrine and they will cause those people to sin. And not only will, will those false teachings cause them to sin, they, those pastors, well, those pseudo-pastors and teachers, they will actually rejoice in the sinfulness of their followers. Which Romans tells us is unequivocally condemned by God. So we'll have some who will lead others astray by their, by their false doctrine and their false teaching, which is why it is so important for us as Christians, to know what God's Word really says. I, I want to encourage you, when I say something, if I don't back it up with Scripture and you don't think it's right, then you better come talk to me after the service. Now, sometimes I misspeak. Sometimes I get a little too much coffee in the morning and get so excited that the words flow a little too quickly. But you need to to be aware of what God's word really says and what it really teaches. And not be afraid to call me or a Sunday school teacher or a Bible study leader quietly to the side and say, is that really what God's word says? Show me in scripture. Help me understand. Because false doctrine is destructive. The second way we'll see people cause one another to sin or cause others to sin is by an unholy lifestyle. And Jesus addresses this one specifically. He goes on to say that if, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to sin, Tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, we have to understand something about what Jesus is saying here. He is using a figure of speech called hyperbole. And, and, and what it is is he is communicating in such an extreme way because he wants us to understand how extreme sin is in our life. We are not actually supposed to be cutting off hands and feet and poking out eyes. Okay? Just, just Jesus is exaggerating. He's not misspeaking or lying. He's saying to us, sin and the things that cause sin in our lives are so damaging and destructive. In fact, they will destine us to hell. 
that we must cut them out of our life, remove them from our life aggressively. Even to the extent, if you can imagine it, if it was necessary that you would cut off body parts or poke out eyes to stop sinning. Now, I have news for you. If your right hand causes you to sin and you were to cut it off, there's a good chance you'd be using your left hand for it next. If your left eye causes you to sin and you're chasing waterfalls, you instead would need to poke out your right eye almost immediately because you would pursue the same sinfulness and brokenness. You cut off your leg, I guarantee you'd be hopping over and need to remove the other leg in no time. Because Jesus isn't talking about literally removing body parts, but he is literally talking about removing the things that lead us astray from our lives. He says that, that these things, the, the hand, the foot, and the eye, they're representative of actions and destinations and the things that we see or consume that lead us to sinfulness that will ultimately result in destruction if we do not turn to Christ and excise these things from our life. So, you know, a list of actions. I don't need to give them, you know, but things that your hands do. We can see, just imagine, if you will, throughout the course of the week, the things that you have done with your hands that have been wrong in God's eyes or destructive in your relationship with him the things that you have done with your hands. And instead of cutting your hands off, start cutting those activities out of your life. Start removing those things that your hands are doing because those things will lead you astray. And not only could they lead you astray, but even more sad would be if they cause someone else to be led astray. Because Jesus says it would be better for you to have a great millstone hung around your neck and, and to be thrown into the sea. And when we talk about a great millstone, we're not talking about a little rock. We're talking about one that's big enough that an animal needs to be used to turn it. An ox or a donkey. Huge stone. And, and what's interesting is that there was the belief in Jewish culture that if your body went unrecovered in drowning or in at the bottom of the sea with a millstone around your neck and you could not be properly buried that your soul would exist in a state of turmoil and so Jesus is saying it would be better for you to die in a terrible horrible way and live in a state of torment and turmoil for eternity than to cause another one another believer to sin so, your hand, cut it off. The actions that would lead you to wrongdoing, cut, it, um, cut them out. The places you go that make you choose to sin. Now, you, you might go, what are you talking about, Michael? I'll tell you what I'm talking about. The places that you go, and in going there, you always encounter a situation that takes you where you know you're not supposed to go. Right? I, I, I mean... I don't know that any of us frequent a pub or the local bar. But if you do, 
and you find yourself drunk every time you go there, every time you walk in that door, cut that destination off. Cut your feet off. Now, you know, well, I go for the fellowship, then stop getting drunk. <laughs> right? I, it, you get the picture? If every time you go to the deli area at Giant Eagle and you buy two packages of fried chicken and eat them both that night, and some of you are looking around going, who could do that? Oh, yeah, there's a couple of us. <laughs> then you know what you need to do? Stop walking into the deli section. And, and it's that easy sometimes to avoid a sin. And sometimes it's that hard, too. Man, fried chicken's good. But better to, to cut off that destination than to experience torment, to experience judgment. And our eyes, Jesus says, pluck out your eye, poke it out. Those things that we see, those things that we consume, that lead us to sin. Some of us think that maybe it's okay to watch it as long as we don't do it. It's not true. It's not true. Some of us think it's, it's okay to, to, you know, smoke just enough, but not too much. I just needed a good mellow. Maybe you don't, and you need to stop. I, I don't know, you know, you, the list of, of things that we do for the sake of our flesh and to in, enjoy life is a long one. And all of us have our own thing, don't we? We've got our own thing. I love NOS energy drinks. I would almost say it's an addiction, but I can quit anytime I want. I just don't want to. <laughs> See, but that's the joke we can make, right? It's a joke we can make. Oh, man. I, I mean, you know, when I drink them, I feel terrible. My teeth hurt, and I get the shakes. Oh, but they taste so good. Well, why do we do that? Why do we continue to choose things that dishonor God? that shame ourselves, that hurt our bodies. Pluck out our eyes. Stop seeing and consuming things. Because this is not a question of, of you know, well, I need to be a good person, so God will love. This is really, according to what Jesus is saying, this is a, a, a distinction between holiness and hell. That we need to see sin in our lives. We need to see our attitudes toward one another we need to see our attitudes toward ministry, not as just, yeah, I want to be a good person, but really it's so starkly that it's a discussion between holiness and being in God's presence and being used by God, and the only other choice is hell. And he says that this, this, this experience called hell, it's, it's a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched constantly consumed painfully by the things that we thought were more important than God. Now Jesus goes on to say this, and this is actually a little bit of an enigmatic statement, one where when we read it, we kind of go, huh? He says, for everyone will be salted with fire. And guess what? I have um, a Bible like you, and I read it, and I go, huh? So then I turn to things like commentaries, 
people who are much more learned than I, who can speak the original languages and read them well and understand them. And guess what? When you turn to commentaries and you read and you try and find out what this verse means, in many of the commentaries, it is a very wordy and expanded, huh? Sometimes when we translate the Greek to English, and we try and understand what Jesus meant originally, sometimes we just get, huh? Because we're not there in the moment, and we're not there in the culture and the context. So we ask the Holy Spirit, what, what would you speak to us in this? Best guess for many commentators that the, Jesus is making a statement that everyone will be tested with fire. And it's another word picture of Everyone, when it comes to what you do with your hands, where you go with your feet, what you consume with your eyes, you're going to be tested. And so you're going to have to make a choice. No believer will be able to walk through life just saying, well, I, you know, I'm, just, I'm not going to make any hard stands or make any difficult choices. I'm just going to love everybody and love God and I'll be okay. Jesus is saying, no, everybody's going to be tested someday. And you're going to have to take a stand. Everybody is going to have to cut something off in order to continue to walk in holiness. And he says this, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? He says to us, have salt in yourselves. In other words, be agents of change and flavor and preservation. And finally, be at peace with one another. Stop striving. Stop, stop pointing fingers and saying, well, I'm a better Christian than them, so everything must be okay. No, you worry about where your feet are going, where your hands, what your hands are doing, what your eyes are consuming. You worry about your attitude. Are you puffed up and proud or are you humble and serving? You worry about the activities that you're doing to the glory of Christ and to lift up his name. You have salt in yourself and be at peace with those around you. As we kind of just wrap up this morning, worship team can begin to make their way up if they're ready. Um, if not, you guys can pray about it a little bit more. Understand that this life in Christ that we're called to live, it's one of servanthood. It's one that centers on good works to Christ's glory. It centers on sound doctrine, believing according to what Scripture clearly teaches, not about what you'd like to think about Scripture. And it's a life that is centered on personal holiness, cutting off activities and destinations and things that we consume for the sake of our standing with Christ and the ministry He's called us to. So this morning, I know it kind of threw a lot of concepts at you, but really it boils down to if you want to walk faithfully with Christ, it is in an attitude of service, a focus on good works to his glory, and a life that is both sound in thinking and action so that you can continue to walk with him. And so this morning, if you've got sins that you need to deal with. You've got some things you know you need to be cutting off. I want to encourage you to kneel at your seat, to, to, to stay seated as we sing, and instead spend time in prayer confessing to God 
the things that you need to see removed from your life. If you've got some doctrine issues, some things that you believe you're not sure if it's right or wrong, start coming to Bible studies. Start coming to places where you can ask others. You know, so did Jesus really have a third eye that he hid under his, uh, his bangs? Or is that, you know, let's see what Scripture says. Let's see what Scripture says. If you've got some things you're not sure about, the only way to grow is to get into God's Word with other believers and find sound doctrine. And then finally, be looking for a way that you can serve. What does it take to be a servant according to Jesus? Just a cup of cold water to somebody in need. How can you do ministry in Jesus' name? Start small. You don't need to see the world changed, just your world, right where you're at in this moment. Let's pray together and then we'll sing. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the word that you've blessed us with. We thank you that your son Jesus was so profound and yet so simple so deep and life-changing in what he taught and yet so understandable when we take time to read him. And so, Father, we thank you for your son who came and lived the Christ and taught clearly what it means to follow him. And then living that perfect life without sin, he died on the cross for us, absorbed your wrath, paid the price for all of the sins who for those who would believe on him as Lord and Savior. He rose again on the third day to prove it's all true. And even now, he lives forevermore. Thank you for that. Jesus, we are thankful for what you've taught us today. Help us to serve. Help us to remove the things that taint our lives and to be at peace with one another as we serve together. We love you and we thank you. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.
this love that pursues us should inspire us to follow Christ with all that we are in servanthood and humility, pursuing holiness and sound doctrine, and doing even the simplest of things to the glory of God, like a simple cup of water in His name. So this week, the challenge is for all of us to live in that humility, that attitude of service, that pursuit of sound doctrine, and that lifestyle of personal holiness that cuts out what's unnecessary and sin-inducing in our lives. Opportunities to gather together for Bible study include tomorrow night, 6.30, 7, downstairs uh, for adult Bible study in the book of James. Wednesday night, ladies ministry, Thursday night, student ministry, and the next Sunday morning, of course, downstairs as well. If you are like, I'd like to come to a small group, but there's nothing that fits my schedule, come talk to me. We'll see if we can't find something that'll fit your schedule. Start something new that would be your schedule and three or four other people's maybe. So God bless you all. Have a great week pursuing the love that pursues you. We'll see you in small groups and next